Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. It is Friday. It's the Three Martini Lunch. We're so glad you are with us. Your stool is ready. And Jim, I hope you can keep a good focus today. I know you've got one foot out the door as you head out on vacation next week, but we do have uh, good, bad, and crazy martinis for conservatives. Today, we're brought to you by the Bradley Foundation. That's bradleyfdn.org slash liberty. And Jim, let's start with the good news. And it's not often that we see a full-throated denunciation, not only of communist China, but of American corporations who have no trouble speaking, quote unquote, truth to power and taking on the the woke lingo of the day in America. But when it comes to actually confronting the Chinese government for its cavalcade of horrific human rights abuses, they somehow can't find their tongue. But Attorney General Bill Barr is on the case. He was speaking, uh, I believe, at the Gerald Ford Center. This was yesterday. And he said a number of things that I think uh, a lot of folks would stand up and applaud. First of all, just reading a couple of quotes, he said, the People's Republic of China is now engaged in an economic blitzkrieg, an aggressive, orchestrated whole of government campaign to seize the commanding heights of the global economy and to surpass the United States as the world's preeminent superpower. All too often, for the sake of short-term profits, American companies have succumbed to that influence, even at the expense of freedom and openness in the United States. He called U.S. technology companies, quote, pawns of Chinese influence, even mentioning that several of them uh, decided to denounce China for its new security law in Hong Kong. But then when China threatened to arrest those companies' employees in China, uh, we might not see the uh, tech companies hold up. But these all, he wasn't done. He also took aim at Hollywood for being hypocritical in the challenging U.S. culture, but not the Chinese government. Here's what he said. Hollywood's actors, producers, and directors pride themselves on celebrating freedom and the human spirit. And every year at the Academy Awards, Americans are lectured about how this country falls short of Hollywood's ideals of social justice. But Hollywood now regularly censors its own movies to appease the Chinese Communist Party, the world's most powerful violator of human rights. This censorship infects not only the versions of movies that are released in China, but also many that are shown in the United States theaters to American audiences. So, Jim, we know the the president himself has had kind of a schizophrenic relationship with the Chinese. He wants to get the trade deal done, but in other times he's been very tough on them, usually related to trade as well. Hasn't talked that much about Hong Kong, certainly not as much as you and I would probably like. So what do you make of uh, Bill Barr just dropping bombs all over the place here? Yeah, there were times where you just kind of wish that Barr could either write the speeches for the president or just kind of temporarily mind meld with the president and that Barr's words could come out of the president's mouth because Barr is a, you know, knows his stuff backwards and forwards and is very eloquent about it. And, you know, I think one of the strengths of Barr is that he calls out really the most, you know, unjust, the strongest ground that, that he doesn't go into gray areas or something like that. You, you could argue that the United States has flaws and still say, you know what, having concentration camps with a million to two million Uyghurs um, all across uh, you know, Western China is unacceptable and completely uncomparable to anything the United States is doing wrong. Um, you could, you know, the, the point about Hollywood, 
Hollywood complains about all the, the complete uh, you know, disregard of all copyrights um, and the, how much their intellectual property gets stolen and all of that. And yet they're very eager to not only work with China, not only are they afraid, unafraid to make, um, they'll, they'll make anybody the bad guys, but you almost never see Chinese villains. Uh, we all, you know, some people may remember the rather awkward scenes of the Chinese government responding competently and confidently in all the Transformers movies. Um, <laughs> The only guy, the only one I can think of is that Richard Gere did one about uh, the Chinese justice system. And Ch Richard Gere has been very into Tibet and Buddhism and, and you know, uh, issues like that. And that was, that was a bunch of years ago. So Hollywood, which likes to think of itself as willing to stand up to injustice anywhere, uh, you know, loses its voice when it turns into that. You know, Barr didn't go into this. We talked about the NBA a great deal. Um, and corporate America, you know, in addition to the examples you mentioned there, Greg, all the various companies that have at one point or another either helped build or helped add components to the various uh, domestic surveillance systems that the Chinese government has built with. Um, at some point, I realize, you know, corporations are established to make a profit. They want to create a good or service that they can bring to the world and make a lot of money in that. There's nothing inherently wrong with that. But at some point, if you're an American company, you do have to ask yourself, you know, what is your purpose? What do you want to do? What do you want your legacy to be? If you want your legacy to be, well, we moved all of our operations to China and we did everything possible to stop avoiding them. Uh, they stole our intellectual property, but we didn't complain too much because we were still making money, uh, good profit margins on the cheap labor they offered us. Uh, you know, what, what is your legacy? What do you want to be? You know, this, clearly, we are shaping up towards a greater conflict hopefully a non-military conflict, but still I think a significant ideological and geopolitical conflict between the United States and China. And it's time for every company that is based in the United States to ask themselves, okay, when push comes to shove, whose side do you come down on? And I think the Christian question is a lot of institutions would rather not have to make that choice. And I think it's, it points to a um, excessive critical view of the United States. I think it's an ex excessively generous view of the Chinese government. And most importantly, a desire for profits and an unwillingness to confront something that could disrupt the continued uh, uh, accumulation of those profits. So corporate America has the NBA syndrome. Uh, apparently, <laughs> uh, if you have a presence in China, you somehow can't find your freedom of speech anymore, even if you're not even in China. But I think, Jim, that actually, since we're going to keep this a good martini, uh, explains just how much better the United States is than China. Yes, we find it hypocritical, but think about the fact that if you're willing to just constantly berate the United States, as wrong as you can be, you're doing it because you know you have the freedom to do so. Yeah, you might get some blowback, but criminally speaking, nothing's going to happen to you. Whereas in China, you could end up in a gulag for the rest of your life and no one's going to know whatever happened to you. That really tells the difference between, in, in just one small way, uh, of how great our system is compared to theirs. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, every now and then on this podcast, I'll mention that I spent two years living in Turkey um, because I was connected to the U.S. diplomatic community. I was not subject to Turkish law the same way everyone else would be. But, you know, spend some time in a foreign country that does not have the American traditions, that does not have a U.S. constitution, that does not have the First Amendment, and then come back and see if, you, if America, if the United States looks as bad as you, as you think it is. I, you know, I kind of think a lot of people who are really down on the United States, who really look at the U.S. and can't see anything redeeming about it, can't see anything, um, any strengths and, and benefits and virtues that outweigh its flaws, probably do so due to a lack of contrast and a lack of understanding of what, you know, what reality is like all around the globe and how much the United States stands out for what it's gotten right.
I think also this is completely unrelated to China, but don't you get kind of a Dick Cheney vibe when you listen to Bill Barr speak? And, you know, I don't know if their politics are all that similar. Obviously, they both lean to the right, but just their demeanor that you could be talking about what you want to have for dinner or someone screams in their face and their tone of voice is going to be exactly the same no matter how they're spoken to. I always <laughs> I always had the uh, one of Dick Cheney's kids coming in late, missed curfew by two hours and... Uh, you know, most dads would be, you know, you kept me up till three in the morning. We were worried about you, that kind of thing. He'd be like, well, your mother and I are a little disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> Always the same tone. I, I'm hoping you're, you're only, you know, only, you know, speaking out of one half of your mouth. Uh, I was, of you, course, you yes. This, as of the Cheney impression. <laughs> no, you, you, I'll make an observation that probably is unites both Dick Cheney and, and Barr. Um, by the time they reached the position where they were best known. The great irony, of course, is that Barr was attorney general way back in the George H.W. Bush days. They both reached a level of success in government life where they didn't really need to pound the table. They didn't really need to attract attention or, um, you know, they, they were not carnival barkers, right? When they said something, they did so because they meant it. They didn't feel a need to overhype things. They didn't feel a need to change for anyone. And I'm sure some image consultant would look at Dick Cheney or look at Barr and say, well, yes, you have gravitas to take you back to 2000 and how that was suddenly the word that everybody used, insisting that, you know, Cheney had it, George W. Bush didn't. Um, but, but, you know, there was just kind of this sense of these were guys who knew what they were doing, who'd been playing the game for a long time, so to speak. They had read, done their homework, read the briefings, knew the stuff backwards and forwards, and they were going to say it bluntly and directly, but they were not there to put on a show. It was not their job to entertain you. Their job was just to tell you what's going down and what was going on. And that was that. And it was up to you to, you know, absorb it. And they weren't going to dumb it down for you. And they weren't going to, uh, and I think the public is well served by that and probably needs more of it. So, um, but anyway, that's just my, my sense of what the, the common thread between the style of the two men. Yes. The fact that you reminded me that, that Barr was attorney general for a time in the George H.W. Bush administration. Of course, Cheney was too as uh, defense secretary. So I can just imagine they're very civil if they had any major disagreements at a cabinet <laughs> meeting. Uh, it would just be very, very calm, very measured. Uh, Dick, I, I just How are you doing today? <laughs> no complaints. Got fine. I, I, nice weather. Indeed it is. I strongly disagree with that, Bill. I think I think you're way out to lunch on that. I mean, just very, very, very monotone. We should do the podcast as Cheney and Barr one day. <laughs> just hurling insults and in, in very, um, you know, like when like Dick Cheney used probably inadvisable language to Pat Leahy. I bet he didn't yell it. I bet he didn't yell it. I bet he just said it very matter-of-factly. Not condoning it, just saying. It was probably just... Quote Hamilton, I have the honor to be your, your obedient servant. All right. We're brought to you today by the Bradley Foundation. And Bill Barr seems to have a pretty good uh, handle on making sense of current events. But uh, during this extraordinary time, especially 2020, making sense of current events can be pretty trying. Conceived in Liberty, the Bradley Speaker Series is a brand new video series that offers meaningful perspectives through engaging 15-minute interviews, just 15 minutes. Guests focus on the big picture and distill what the latest developments mean to our deeply held commitment to restore, to strengthen, and to protect the principles and institutions of American exceptionalism. And boy, are those under attack right now. Visit bradleyfdn.org liberty to watch their most recent episode featuring Wall Street Journal columnist Kimberly Strassel. That's Bradley with an L-E-Y at the end, B-R-A-D-L-E-Y-F-D-N 
bradleyfdn.org slash liberty, bradleyfdn.org slash liberty to watch the video. New episodes will debut weekly, so come back often and subscribe to their YouTube channel to be notified whenever a new one is posted. That's bradleyfdn.org slash liberty. Well, speaking of the Wall Street Journal, they've got some bad news for us today as we shift to that martini, Jim. The job situation, we've been pretty bullish based on the May and June reports, better than expected. Uh, but we might be losing some steam here for the same reason we lost a lot of steam towards the end of February and into early March. The U.S. labor market is losing momentum as a surge in coronavirus cases triggers heightened employer uncertainty and consumer caution. Job openings in July are down from last month across the U.S. and Google searches for, quote, file for unemployment are creeping up. Growth in worker hours is waning at small businesses after several weeks of gain. Job postings declined in all 50 states and Washington, D.C. in the past two weeks, according to Glassdoor. And so, Jim, what seems to be happening here is like when the market tanked before the shutdown really started, Wall Street and others are anticipating bad things coming, even though the bad thing hasn't necessarily arrived yet. So we could be in for another rough ride here. Yeah, you know, you don't want to count any chickens before they hatch or fail to hatch. We'd had a nice, you know, a really good run. Some of the biggest single month jumps in employment uh, as businesses reopened and, and lockdowns got lifted. Um, so far, places are trying to avoid lockdowns, although obviously you saw the shutdowns of indoor dining in places like California. At some point, that's going to start affecting places. Um, in fact, I feel like just anecdotally um, in the last couple of, you know, let's say two weeks or so, we've seen a bit more in uh, businesses that were, were trying to hang on and managed to get through the first couple of months and kind of, you know, tried to get by and take out delivery and stuff like that, that are now sh shutting their doors permanently. And it's heartbreaking and it's disappointing. You know, um, Chances, it's going to be an interesting race between the states and places that are having to reenact or re, uh, reinstall, you know, various limitations. Um, obviously, a whole bunch of states have now put mask uh, restrictions in place. I think that's, you know, a, you know, generally a good and needed step. I don't believe that, you know, Greg Abbott is secretly trying to take away your rights or uh, local officials in places like South Carolina. Um, this is, you know, their efforts to say, hey, you know, this, this is real. This is winning. When people, you know, gripe about this, mask requirements are the thing you do so that you don't have to shut down the businesses. So you don't have to shut down the places and tell everybody to stay home. So give me a mask requirement over a non-essential businesses closing any day of the week and twice on Sundays. But, uh, you know, ominous indicators. We will get the, you know, July numbers that, uh, you know, first Friday in August. There had been this nice narrative of a V-shaped one. I think it was a couple of weeks ago we talked about the idea of the reverse square root uh, one, which was, it sounds like complicated math, but the gist is you get something of a rebound and then it kind of flatlines. And uh, that would be bad if that's what comes to pass. We'll see how things shake out. But uh, I guess you could say it's an ominous rattle in the engine. No, I think that's right. And uh, math was not my strong suit. So the fact that I was gone for the reverse square root discussion uh, was, was probably best for everyone. Although you're talking about the, the way that the graph would look, I'm pretty sure I can, I can comprehend that. So, I mean, this has just been so different than what everybody expected. I mean, 15 days to flatten the curve. Okay, I guess we're going to have to go through April. And then uh, we slowly reemerged in a lot of states. And, uh, and now the numbers are creeping back up. And so nobody's exactly sure what's going to happen. Most of all schools, uh, boy, is that a mess right now. And nobody really knows what to expect. Although it seems more and more schools, uh, at least in our area, are going to start with all distance learning, if any learning actually happens in that format. And, and they'll see where they go from there. But uh, 
I know, I know where you are, there's at least an option. Anyway, let's talk about how the virus is affecting politics. Of course, it's still a presidential election year, even though one candidate's constantly in his basement. Uh, but that candidate will be in Milwaukee next month, we think, and uh, giving a speech to accept the Democratic Party nomination. Uh, but the number of people at the convention is going to be microscopic compared to what was originally planned. Uh, New York Times, when Democrats awarded their 2020 convention to Milwaukee, plans called for a crowd of more than 50,000 delegates, journalists, party officials, and VIPs. But as the coronavirus spread this spring and the convention was pushed back to August, the number dwindled first to 5,000 attendees, then a mere 1,000. Now, one month before the party is set to gather at a convention site smaller than the one originally selected, officials are expecting the quadrennial event to include as few as 300 people, a number that includes not only attendees, but also the news media, security personnel, medical consultants, and party workers, which I think leads to a very small percentage of people with funny hats on the convention floor, if there is, even is a floor here, Jim. So I know if you uh, know the story of Gideon, you can win with 300 people if the Lord is on your side. Uh, if, you're, if you're in ancient Greece, uh, you can put up a good fight at least with 300. So uh, what do you make of the Democrats essentially uh, holding an in-person convention for a few dozen of their very closest friends? Yeah. So it's one of those things where I get why the parties are reluctant to cancel the convention entirely. And the Democrats have been saying from the very beginning, you know, from early on, oh, we're, it's going to be a virtual convention, you know, and uh, I assume it's not going to be lots. Like it'd be kind of funny if you had a, a picture, a hall in which instead of lots of people there, you just had lots and lots of screens of people's faces, almost like like a like a, a giant mass of max headrooms. Correct, uh, just kind of you know screens of people heads, people's heads, and Biden goes out there and gives his speech, and lots of people cheer, um, even though it's all a bunch of screens staring back at him. It'd be a very surreal and weird experience um, because three hundred people, you know there's a good chance you've probably been to a party that's had more than 300 people uh, stretched out there. It's, it's a, you know, if, if getting people together in groups is, is not, uh, you know, something you can do safely in this environment, that's kind of what a convention is. And of course, yes, you have to do certain things to take care of, uh, uh, you know, the official nomination process and paperwork and ceremony and all that kind of stuff. But like 300 people, do you do the balloon drop? <laughs> do, you, do you do all these things that have always been part of it? Do you want Biden giving a speech and for the, you know, he's like, you know, we will, you know, rebuild America to its brightest days. <laughs> this smattering of applause and you know, just not going to be anything like what we've known conventions to be. And if you can't have the pageantry, if you can't have all the things that make a, a you know, convent, political convention, like, because you don't really need it to do anything. It's no longer smoke, you know, the, the smoke-filled rooms and the fighting amongst the delegates and, and you know, all of these, uh, all these old procedures that used to be necessary for the process of the nomination. What do you do it for? Pageantry and the TV coverage and all that was really the whole point. You know, people who, who have to cover these things used to complain, ah, oh, you know, they've turned into a three-night or four-night uh, uh, advertisement for the parties. And, you know, the networks largely went along with it under the idea, although obviously the primetime network coverage of it kept shrinking and shrinking to eventually it was an hour a night. And then I think, I don't know what was like the last cycle, but it was, you know, it's smaller and smaller because the network suddenly realized, wait a minute, we're giving up all the excitement of high ratings of our summer reruns. 
<laughs> in exchange for a bunch of boring political speeches that unsurprisingly lots and lots of Americans just aren't that interested in, in listening or, or watching. And that's where we are now. Um, that, that it's one of those things where like, we're not even gonna have that. So the question would be, what's the point of all this? And, you know, I, I know that the, uh, the president still wants to have something close to his traditional experience down in Jacksonville. They're, they're having all kinds of efforts at masks and, and, and things like that. But I think it's, it's going to be challenging there. You know, we, we may go through this and the conclusion would be, you know, this didn't turn out well. These conventions were kind of a bad idea. Hopefully they don't spread the, the virus that badly, but it all turned into this, like, what were we thinking? What were we doing? What was the point of all that? And I don't, I just, you know, this is picked as our crazy martini because they're trying to do something. Uh, they're, they're trying to hold, get all the benefits of a large gathering in an environment where they cannot have a large gathering. And I, I don't think it's going to turn out very well for them, Greg. I was just thinking about the point you made about just the smattering of applause. If there's, you know, the whole, only 300 people allowed in the building, you figure at the most, maybe half of those are actual delegates on the floor and they can't be that close to each other. And if it's a cavernous room, it's just going to sound like nobody's there. So my prediction is twofold. Number one, Biden's going to decide that it's too serious and somber of a time to have a raucous crowd. And he's just going to have, there might be people there, but he's going to almost have it like a presidential address style. And it's going to be a lot shorter than your typical convention speech, not only because there's no interruptions for applause, but because I don't think he can keep a, a strong train of thought for 45 minutes. So it's probably <laughs> going to be about 15, 20 minutes and, uh, and go from there. That's my prediction. I, I think you're right. At some point, the, the difficulties and the realities of this are just going to hit them hard. And they're going to say, you know, this is not... <laughs> This is not working. This is not going to do it. And also, look, the entire Biden strategy is based on minimizing how much he uh, is exposed to people. I think, you know, they've decided that that Trump is self-destructing. So I'm not going to uh, get in the way of that. And so that's, guess what? This is where they are. Why do a long speech where things could go terribly wrong when, in fact, uh, you know, just keep it short, keep it sweet, you know, keep it vague and continue to try to be that blank slate that people can project what they want onto rather than actually, you know, contrasting with Trump and doing something that could, uh, you know, discourage people from saying, oh, I want, I want Biden instead of Trump. So. Yeah, I totally agree on the vague thing, too. He's not going to get into a lot of detail about how much he's adopted the Bernie Sanders agenda. He's going to focus uh, very vague platitudes on what he will do and uh, get very specific about where he thinks Trump has failed. You know, you know what we're going to get, Greg? I noticed this kind of rhythm or cadence to a Biden speech. We're going to get a lot of whisper, whisper, whisper. Shout, shout, shout. Whisper, whisper, whisper. Shout, shout, shout. There's kind of this da 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 Anyway, next time, once you, you know, now that I've mentioned this, next time you watch a Joe Biden speech, you will not be able to unhear that. <laughs> oh, I love that. And I've also noticed, Jim, I don't know if this has happened to anyone else, but it's happened to me. And I think I mentioned this when Rob Long was sitting in for you, is that I, I get, somehow I got on the Joe Biden email list, but you know, all these, uh, these political emails, they say, Jim, we really need you to chip in $5 right now, that sort of thing. But for some reason in the Joe Biden campaign, I'm Doris. They call me Doris. <laughs> so, so I can just imagine that Joe Biden, can you just imagine Joe Biden, no matter what your name is, saying, listen, Doris, here's the deal. And then uh, and going on, <laughs> even if your name's Tim or Chuck or Amy or whatever it is, but uh, just, uh, just, just throwing Doris out there randomly because he totally forgot what your name was. But. You know, here's the thing, Greg, I would not advertise that too much because Joe Biden thinks you're Doris. You never know when he might try to smell your hair. <laughs> not at the convention. There's not going to be anybody there. All right. Uh, you know, old habits are hard, hard to break uh, there. 
Jim, have a great vacation. I will see you a week from Monday. See you a week from Monday, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Columbus, Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. Thanks to the Bradley Foundation for being our sponsor today. To check out their new Bradley Speaker Series, go to bradleyfdn.org liberty. Please subscribe to the Three Martini Lunch. Leave us a kind review with five stars. Get us on those home devices by saying play Three Martini Lunch podcast. And join us again on Monday. We will have a whole smorgasbord of special guests to fill in for Jim next week. See you Monday on the Three Martini Lunch.